Layla Tassi is back in the house. The columnist for Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer is the first guest on this episode of This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn, and like I said, I'm with Layla Tassi. How are you doing, Layla? I'm doing great. How are you, Chris? I'm doing okay. It's the second day back from vacation. I'm getting more into the groove. But as you've already noticed, I'm a little bit rusty. We had to record (laughs) a second take. So let's get to it. Is Cleveland Public Power finally going to follow the law and give people hearings about electricity shutoffs? This is a big deal. One of your first columns when you became our new columnist last summer was an expose about the injustice that Cleveland Public Power was visiting upon its many customers by denying them due process. And it was really one of my favorite watchdog pieces of last year. And now... Layla Tassi gets action. Yay. What's going on? <laughs> well, actually, it was this year. It was February that we did that that column. Um, and- well, you know what? Anything pre-COVID <laughs> is I know, it's last a life- year. It was a lifetime ago, basically. God, was that really February? Right <laughs> it was before. February. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So in that column, I wrote about a, a decades-old city of Cleveland ordinance that requires CPP to set up a review board to hear cases of customers who believe that their power was wrongly disconnected. And it turned out that, that, that in that nearly 40 year stretch, they had never bothered to set up this review board. So customers who wanted to dispute their power disconnection couldn't do anything except, you know, haggle with a customer service rep. And often they would end up turning to legal aid for help. Um, So at the time, back in February, the city told me that a board would be assembled upon request, but that in those 40 years, only one person had ever requested a board review, which I found so hard to believe. It seemed much more likely that the reason people never requested a review is that they had no idea that they had the right to one. And the law also says CPP has to notify customers of that right on all the disconnection notices. But again, they just never did it. <laughs> well, and, and the other, the, but the, the, the thing that I was, that I really was struck by when you did the original column is Cleveland Public Power is in the same Department of Public Utilities in Cleveland government as the Cleveland Water Department. And the Cleveland Water Department, as you noted, does all of this because as we know, 10 years ago, the Cleveland Water Department was doing a terrible job, gave us lots of great stories and they had to reform. So the utilities department knew how to do this, but right. they didn't do it with Cleveland Public Power. Exactly. And I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who will say that they've been through the you know water department review board process and there's probably hiccups and nightmares you know to tell about uh, with that. But, but yes, they were offering probably as part of the turnaround that they did for the water department, this review process, and yet not for CPP. And it's it's noticeably absent from the website. There is not a word about how, if you Google, how do I contest my bill or my utility disconnection? Nothing, nothing comes up. Now, to um, his credit, when you confronted Cleveland City Council President Kevin Kelly about this back then, he did say, okay, we have to deal with this, right? He, he wasn't he defensive. Did. He agreed. No. We've got to fix it. He acknowledged that usually when his constituents come to him with a problem with CPP, he deals with it on their behalf. And he had no idea that that this was actually something that they should have been doing all along. And so he he said, you know, I value due process and we're going to tr- you know work to get this done. So I, I do believe that he was instrumental behind the scenes uh, talking to the, the you know, utility director and, and uh, 
trying to to make sure that this gets done. Kind um, of amazing that the city council president, who's a lawyer, said, I had no idea. I know, I know. The you are the city council president <laughs> of the big city of Cleveland. Well, it was, it you was probably should have known. I know. Anyway. It was also amazing to me that that this had never come up that, you know, that, uh, you know, legal aid was aware of it. And and they were working on behalf of their, you know, their cost, their uh, clients. And and I just can't believe that the information never crossed with city council. OK, but <laughs> this is why what we do is so important and what you True. do is so important, because we're a big news outlet in town, the biggest in town, the biggest audience. And so it's a big stick that you carry. So what's going on? Well, so since that column, of course, coronavirus hit and the whole world turned upside down and devastating economic fallout. Uh, CPP and the Water Department at that time issued a moratorium on power and water shutoffs for, you know, kind of indefinitely uh, because so many people are out of work, obviously, and unable to pay their bills. And they haven't determined when that moratorium will expire. But when I checked in with, with Cleveland last week, they assured me that when that moratorium ends, the board of review will finally be up and running, which is just great news. Especially congratulations, Layla Tosti gets action. That's I imagine, a big deal. Yeah, I imagine there there will probably be a record number of people facing potential utility disconnections. So for them to be able to access due process under those conditions um, is really important, and uh, I'm just really glad that really glad that we could facilitate that. I, there's nothing that I like more than watchdog stuff. I, I mean, it's just having a positive impact on the community, helping people who need the help. There's nothing better. I mean, I, I love that we cover sports and all the other things we do, but this is a, a serious, uh, a serious win. Way to go. I, uh, I hope you're proud of yourself. Am, so that's, you. that's yesterday's news. What do you got for us now? <laughs> oh, well, I do have something up my sleeve, but. <laughs> I think it's going to it's going to be it's going to publish on Thursday. So maybe I want to <laughs> keep that one under wraps for a minute. No, but, you know, tomorrow I, I have a very personal column um, that uh, I had been working on since, you know, I was on maternity leave for um, a few months during the pandemic. And um, I decided to kind of sit down, collect my my thoughts on, on what that was like having a newborn at home. And also I had, of course, my husband is a nurse at the Cleveland Clinic. So having a um, a healthcare worker on the front line while also trying to protect a very vulnerable baby at home from exposure to this deadly virus was just a very stretch, a very stressful stretch of uh, our lives. Um, so I kind of tried to to collect my ideas around that and am hoping that it will maybe uh, it, it encourage others to share their stories with me of what they've experienced during the pandemic. I'd love to write about. Uh, other healthcare workers and and frontline uh, workers and and those essential workers out there who uh, have a story to share. We it would be great to bring that humanity to our coverage of of the coronavirus pandemic. Okay, cool. I'll look forward to reading that. I hope you get the response. Thanks for being on the podcast. You're gonna Thanks for having leave, me. you're gonna leave now, and I'm gonna bring in some others. But uh, it's always good to have you on here. I should probably bring you on after every one of your columns because <laughs> this is so much fun. You're listening to this week in the CLE. So does Ohio actually have a surge in coronavirus cases? We talked on this podcast just yesterday about we were not seeing the expected surge and the possible reasons for that. But Rich Exner has posted a story this morning that says we are suddenly seeing a surge. I'd like to welcome my colleagues, Laura Johnston and Chris Warnowski, to the podcast. Chris Warnowski, what is Rich finding? 
Right. So the story he put up this morning says that for 12 straight days from June 6th through last Wednesday, the number of new cases reported each day ranged from 300 to 434, averaging uh, 389 a day during that period. And it had been it had been dropping and, and we had been seeing decreases. But but this this represents what he considers a very, very significant spike. And it's not just a, a blip on the radar. It's it's we're trending in that direction now. You know, there was there's been some talk. Donald Trump did it in his in his Tulsa speech that the we're seeing this spike because of increased testing. But the Washington Post has a terrific story they posted in the last day or so that that looks at not just the raw numbers, but the percentage of positive tests. And what Mm -hmm. they found is in a bunch of states that that positive test ratio is steadier going up. We can't really tell in Ohio yet whether this is the result of increased testing but we also know, we talked about this yesterday, we expected a surge when Ohio reopened, that there's a natural increase that's going to happen as people get back together. And the question would be, is it manageable? It seems like Rich Exter is saying the, the rapid increase he's seeing over these last days is a bit frightening. We haven't seen it in the hospitals as much yet, but there is that natural delay. Well, this is Laura Johnston. Yeah, the first, when he's talking about these 12 straight days, at the beginning, we're talking 300, 400. And then, like, on Monday, I think we're up 729. And so it's not just an increase. Like, it's a exponentially looking increase. Um, so, yeah, we don't know if it's more testing. We don't know if it's the opening of everything. We don't know. One of the possibilities is that there are finding new cases from the past. So these probable cases are getting added in um, that are older. So there's a, a big confluence of factors that could be going in that he's looking into right now. Yeah, and we did we did talk about this. Or we didn't really talk about it last week because we didn't have a podcast. But there, <laughs> there, the the governor did note that there was a an area in the southwest part of the state that was also experiencing a pretty pretty significant increase in cases and that they right. were and they're bringing in the national, the national guard. guard to go down and help with the response to that. So it'll be interesting to see where all of these new cases exactly are. If Northeast Ohio, which had less travel, uh, isn't seeing the same kind of spike where Southwest is seeing more, because I think that R not number, that number of people you were transmitting to with each disease was up to about 1.2 in uh, Southwest Ohio, and that's above, they want to keep it at at least one. And at points, we were down to, I think, 0.8 or something. So it'll be interesting to see if there are pockets of Ohio that are doing better or worse. Well, let's face it. I mean, people are getting together. I think, Laura, you've sent your kids to summer camp. And, yes. and you know, I went on vacation. And I there there is an increased risk with everything we do. Some of it's an acceptable risk. Some of it's not. The people who aren't wearing masks and getting up close to you in the grocery store, not acceptable. But but we're we're all doing this. So it's so you do expect something. It's just how much is the, the question. The next few days, I guess, will be really important. I hope we get an answer from the governor who has a briefing today on the percentage of positive tests, because that's something that we're not quite sure we can ascertain based on the data that's available now. Rich Exeter's trying, but it would be really helpful if Mike DeWine would say, okay, here's the number of tests we've done. 
Here's the percentage that's positive. Here's what that ratio was a week ago and two weeks ago. Because if, if that ratio is dropping, then you'd say, okay, we're doing more tests. Let's face it. It's very easy to get a test right now. We have a staff member who has a very remote chance that she was exposed and you know, she's going to go straight in, get tested, and have the results in a couple of days. You could not do that three, four weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Cuyahoga County government helping out businesses damaged by the Cleveland riot? There's a fund that's been put together. The Downtown Cleveland Alliance has overseen it. It's got money coming in from Cleveland and I think from the Greater Cleveland Partnership. Now, Laura Johnston, Cuyahoga County is kicking in some money, but not as much as Armin Budish had proposed. Right. Um, Executive Armin Budish had proposed $400,000 for businesses. The county council on Monday, kick that down to about $100,000. They want to see how the program works and get a better understanding of the damages. But this is a pretty small piece of the overall amount because, like you said, the Downtown Cleveland Alliance is putting it together. The city of Cleveland could provide up to a million dollars. Greater Cleveland Partnership would chip in between $40,000 and $100,000. The Downtown Cleveland Alliance and the Cleveland Foundation also would put in some money. And we're talking, um, you know, a couple million dollars worth of damages for all of these businesses. So the county's give at this point isn't overwhelming. Actually, there's kind of a long record that that leaders in town laugh about and begrudge that whenever there's a a, a thing that needs money, the county's always got the smallest amount. And if you look at who kicked in the money for the the renovation of the arena. You know, the city put in lots of money and the Cavs put in lots of money. And then there's the county putting in its tiny amount. It's got a long record of not really providing the big amounts. I was a little bit surprised, though, that the county council um, cut that back because four hundred thousand dollars isn't a isn't a great deal of money. And, you know, they're considering giving seven million dollars plus to the Hilton. Um, you know, you would think four hundred thousand for the downtown businesses was not was not that big an ask. Did we get much indication about what their real resistance there? Do they not trust the downtown Cleveland Alliance to spend the money appropriately? I don't think that's the issue. I think they know that they've had this huge budget problem because of the coronavirus and the economic downturn. I mean, they've laid off jail guards. They've furloughed workers. Um, They're taking, you know, there's pay cuts and they're trying to cut. I think they were trying to cut 10% out of their whole budget. So they're probably just being cautious at this point. Okay. They haven't said you they're can't not tell me they're being cautious know, when they're about to give 7.9 million minimum I, to the Hilton. I'm not sticking up for that decision. I'm sure it's contractual, but um, no, I, I agree that it's a small amount compared to a lot of other things. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How much will Cuyahoga County taxpayers pay to the father of Ania Day Garrett He accused the county of failing to protect the four-year-old girl against abuse that led to her death. Chris Ranowski, this is going to be a big, big payout. Yeah. So the county council on Tuesday today uh, will consider paying uh, her father $3 million to uh, effectively close a wrongful death lawsuit that he filed last April. um, And he accused the county and two Euclid daycares of ignoring very clear signs of abuse and neglect uh, that eventually led to her death. Uh, if you remember, she died 
on March 11, 2018, after she suffered a stroke that was caused by like blunt impact to her head. And she had scald marks on her feet and legs and a bruise near her left eye and a cut on her face when she died. And her mother, uh, Sierra Day, and her mother's boyfriend, uh, Deontay Lewis, uh, were sentenced to life in prison last year after they were convicted of aggravated murder and other charges. And what came out of this case was pretty, pretty galling. You know, the, the County Division of Children and Family Services had received uh, at least six reports that the little girl had been abused in the 13 months before she died. And, um, and the the lawsuit accused the agency and its employees of failing to actually investigate those reports. And the report also found that social workers had failed to do follow-ups. Um, they they made very few face-to-face uh, contacts with the ki- with with her, and they ignored like two years worth of injury reports uh, from Ayana's uh, daycare provider. And so. Could it you know, happen again today, or have they taken steps to make sure that the the warning signs are are? Yeah, I mean they the you know they said they've 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 made several changes to their uh, operations and protocols. You know, I would never venture to say never in in stuff like this because you know it, it stuff does get through the cracks sometimes. But you know, it did lead to a kind of come to Jesus moment for the division of children and family services and the County as a whole. And, you know, I, I doubt the County will want to be in this position again. In the future. Although, you know, I've been here a long time and I feel like we've had four or five periods in my time of the come to Jesus moment with child and family services where some heinous act occurs and the record shows that the County had not, filled positions and done what it needed to be up to speed. And it it just seems like we come back to this again and again. You almost wish there was some sort of permanent oversight board. They've appointed oversight boards in the past, but permanent oversight board to constantly be questioning, do you have enough people? What is their training? Because no matter what we do, it seems like we come back to this. And I get it. This is a really hard job. We expect social workers to have the wisdom of Solomon to walk in and and to decide on the spot whether the kid is in such danger they should be removed from the house, which is traumatizing, or left. But I don't know. I just I feel like we've been here over and over, a real sense of deja vu. It's it's one of those things where you, if you if if you really look at like social worker caseloads, it, it's you know we talk about caseloads a lot when we talk about the criminal justice system. You know when you look at like public defenders and you know how many cases they have, and it's usually almost always over what the the National Bar Association recommends. The same problem exists in the social work world, where you know you have like a minimum amount of social workers making not a lot of money being forced to go into really traumatic situations and deal with some of the most ghastly things that you could imagine. And, and it's tough. It's a, it's a hard, hard job. And I don't think, I don't think social workers get enough credit for the hard work. No. When I was a County reporter uh, years ago, I followed uh, every Thursday for like eight months, followed social workers from the County um, and ended up writing a series about it. 
And they have such a hard time even keeping people in those jobs because they get so burnt out, because mm-hmm. they're overwhelmed. And it's, it is a difficult job and they have to use, you know, judgment all the time. And because the end goal is to keep kids with their parents. I mean, that's in a perfect world, they are able to do that. And I'm not saying in at this case specifically, but it's just got to be a really hard road to, to go on to try and do the best for these kids over and over again. And think about it. I mean, in any of our jobs, if we had a 99% success rate in our decisions, we'd feel pretty good. But if a social worker has a 99% success rate, that means one out of 100 kids is left in danger. It's it's a thankless job. You have no room for a mistake. And if you make the mistake that results in a case like this, there's there's hell to pay. So you're, you're, you're both right. This is we put a lot of pressure on them. We don't pay them a lot. And it's, and it's really, uh, it's a tough job. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is the Cleveland Clinic coping with hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue it lost when it stopped performing non-critical surgeries when the coronavirus hit? This has been a story across the nation. The hospitals that are the center of treatment for the coronavirus have lost their resources because they couldn't do the work that actually pays a lot of their bills. Laura Johnston, we learned the Cleveland Clinic is taking some steps because they've had some mammoth losses. Yeah, this is so ironic that in a pandemic, the healthcare system is one of the hardest hit industries. Uh, But the clinic is eliminating raises. They're delaying some capital projects. They're restricting travel, changing paid time off. That means all those doctors and nurses working with coronavirus patients are not getting their annual bump in pay for the first time since 2009. Um, Here's the clinic statement, which I'm sure went over really well with those folks. Our priority is to preserve jobs and not reduce pay for our caregivers. This does not change or devalue the hard work our caregivers and the commitment they have shown. Um, they, They said that they had to do this because they're Revenue for patient services is down more than $500 million. And at the same time, they spend about $100 million to prepare. Remember, they turned that entire brand new building, the education building, into an overflow hospital that, as far as I know, they haven't had to use. So um, they, they're, they're hurting. Although they do have a $7 billion yes. investment <laughs> account because for years they've had huge amounts of what you would call quote unquote profit. It's revenue beyond their expenses. Right. So, and they're nonprofit. So it's not like they're turning that money over to their stockholders. They could dip into that gigantic fund if they wanted to, to take care of their workers. They had the largest gift in history in just November. Um, I think it was, it's a gift from the Lord foundation. So they, um, they, they, they collected a lot of money even, you know, six months ago. And so they're, they're trying to balance rather than go into their reserves. And they're a nonprofit. I mean, they're supposed right. to use the money to serve their, their causes. So I get it. They, they had a big, took a big hit, but that's after years of huge revenue uh, that, that was beyond expenses. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What did Case Western Reserve University find in its mammoth study of what became of 10,000 people who had lead poisoning as children? Everybody knows Cleveland has a huge lead poisoning problem. A Plain Dealer project from 2015 really launched the reform effort to try and make a difference, and that's underway. Case Western Reserve University, though, has, has quantified 
what the problem is. Chris Warnowski, what did their study show? Right. So the study that they released on Monday followed 10,000 children who had experienced uh, blood lead levels uh, elevated before uh, the age of three. And then they follow them through the age of 23 using public data to create a sort of record of their life. And the adults who experienced childhood lead poisoning were more likely to be incarcerated, experience homelessness, and rely on public assistance than children who did not experience that. And so the researchers, they, they matched the population studied with elevated uh, blood levels to people without similar backgrounds. Um, and they used, they calculated what they call this opportunity index for the neighbor, neighborhood where the child was born. And the study showed that these children were consistently less likely to meet educational benchmarks like third grade readiness and state testing requirements and showed lower rates of graduating high school uh, and going to college. And uh, I mean, it's a really fascinating and kind of ultimately depressing study that just shows that, you know, if, if, if you experienced high uh, lead levels in your blood as a child, that, it really has a sort of ripple effect on the rest of your life. Right. The stunted brain development that results ends up, mm-hmm. ends up having that problem everywhere. There was one interesting facet. They, they looked at two groups of students. I, I forget what grades they were in about whatever it was, eight, nine years apart. And they found that there was a drop that over time in the blood poisoning rate. It was still very high for both groups, but it was much higher for the, earlier group was that is that some evidence that the that the problem is in abeyance or was it more that the population has dropped in cleveland or something i think it's probably more that the population has dropped and it's probably a combination of of both a little bit i mean there have been some efforts to sort of address the issue and and to to and and we probably have a little more knowledge about it but I think it's probably more a combination of both, you know, that, you know, just fewer people live here in general. So it's pretty much this, this definitively proves what the plain dealer series had laid out that if you can deal with the, the lead poisoning, you deal with issues of poverty, you deal with issues of criminal justice, you, all of these social ills that plague society would be reduced if we just stop poisoning children's brains. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where we if we spent money now, we would probably, you know, there's a conservative argument to be made if that if you spend a lot of money now to fix and address this problem that you will probably, you know, put less of a burden on the government and 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 taxpayers in the future. So, you know, it you know, if you can imagine, you know, decreasing the jail population and you know, increasing the amount of people who have, you know, good education and, and better health outcomes and, and, and all of those things that sort of, you know, that, that become a, an, an issue that the states have to deal with when people can't take care of themselves or people need assistance for food. You know, there's, hey, here's a, here's a question. How far would $7.9 million go <laughs> to solving the lead issue if you didn't give the money to the Hilton and you used it on Cleveland houses? Just hey, why don't we thought. just move everybody into the Hilton? <laughs> oh, there we go. That's the perfect solution. And this is all, this is Laura Johnston. This all comes down to the, the first 2000 days that we um, talked about it for a couple years in Cleveland and everything that is going on in a kid's brain. If the brain doesn't develop properly, like 
that's the rest of your life. And, and by age five, those things are set in stone. Yeah. It's really hard to change. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's, it's why, it's why things like early childhood education are, are key to helping to fix a lot of the social problems that we have. And, and this is just another thing that, you know, we really should be fixing. Yeah. We should fix it fast. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How will Ohio State University operate with students returned to campus in the fall? This is a story that we've had in multiple campuses. Everybody's trying to figure out how to deal with the massive number of people coming from far away and getting together in tight quarters. Chris Warnowski, what is Ohio State's plan? Well, the first thing you're going to have to do is you're going to have to take your temperature every day and uh, they're going to make you self-report it and they're... Basically, they're going to have an online portal where, where you submit your temperature, and that could also be coupled with a, a swab testing program, uh, but that will only be sort of piloted with a select number of employees before decisions on that are made uh, for the fall semester. Um, they're do also we, look- I, I, but The idea of self-reporting, do, do we really think... That people will do it, or do you, or will will no. kids just get up and type in ninety eight point six and, and go to class? Do you think people will will wear masks? We were asking that a couple months ago, and the answer is yeah and no. So you know, the, <laughs> the, you know, people. There are people who will do it, and there are people who aren't going to do it. You know, I, uh, you know, I don't know how much you guys partied in college, but the last thing I wanted to do when I got up was to take my temperature. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but some of the other stuff that they're going to be doing, I mean, they're going to talk, they're talking about doing sort of online, in person, and hybrid classes where, um, you know, they aren't going to have like, you know, big giant classes, but they'll have sort of blended models that will be a combination of, of, online lectures, but small group in-person labs. Uh, and, and some some things will be taught in sort of non-traditional classrooms and in non-academic buildings to reduce, you know, class density and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it seems like the they're doing sort of a combination of distance learning um, and, and avoiding, you know, putting hundreds of people into a enclosed space. It's this week in the CLE. Where do we stand on the giant tunnel project in Greater Cleveland to stop pumping raw sewage into Lake Erie? Laura Johnston, I can't believe you swim in that thing. It's a giant <laughs> toilet. This is the project to someday down the road, $3 billion later, stop it from being a giant toilet. What's the latest uh, benchmark moment? Okay, I'm just going to say I don't swim after big rains, uh, but yes, we are two-sevenths of the way done. So the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District finished its second tunnel. It's three miles long, 24 feet wide, 200 feet deep under Glenville. And this project came in about $5 million under budget. So it's about $148 million. It's going to hold 55 million million gallons of combined stormwater and wastewater. And so that is all part of the $3 billion project clean late that is not supposed to be done until 2035, but the announcement came yesterday on the 51st anniversary of the Cuyahoga River fire. Right. So, so let me stop you. The, the, yeah. the, the, the way it works now is we got this ancient sewer system that when it rains really hard, mm-hmm. it combines the sewage coming from my house with the storm water and everything else. And when it overflows, it goes into the lake. So what, yes. this, what this does is when it rains really hard, it takes that sewage, rainwater, whatever mix, and puts it into a tunnel to yeah. do what with it? 
it holds it there until the existing pipes have room to take it to the wastewater treatment plant. And so it's connected to a pump station that will get it to the easterly um, wastewater treatment plant and just holds it there until like the ground wears out and all the rest of it just kind of it's the backup pump. So it's Uh, usually it's it's generally empty, but in in these massive downpours, it'll fill up with disgusting stuff that you currently swim in. So, so I just want to point out that in 1972, there were 9 billion gallons of raw sewage discharged into the lake every year. Before Project Clean Lake, we were about 4.5 billion. And at the end of this, there's still going to be 500 million gallons every year that goes into the lake. So uh, we're never going to, it's not going to be totally perfect. And this is why my sewer bill has tripled since I moved here. All for the benefit of Lake Erie, which is our greatest asset. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Okay, good podcast, guys. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This Week in the CLE will be back on Wednesday. 